Okay, let's get started. So this is going to be week five, and like I said, we're going to be um, doing a little bit of dovetailing on last week. So last week we talked about Holy Communion. I did give you all the cheat sheet for Holy Communion, so that's helpful. I want to have my, my prayer book and my water with me, that'd be helpful. Um, and so let's turn to page 83. I want to talk about some of the the spiritual benefits of Holy Communion as we, we look at them. So this, page 83, is the end of the, after the distribution, we have the post-communion prayer. And sometimes, I don't know about y'all, but sometimes it's real easy when doing these, okay, we're, we're almost at the end of the service, you kind of can uh, zoom, zone out a little bit because you're, you're almost at the end, that you've uh, been moving around, and then you sat back down again and all that sort of thing. But when you really listen and focus on the words being prayed in, uh, at this post-communion prayer, we see some really, really neat things happening in terms of what we say we're even here for. So um, at first we say that we are assured of God's favor and goodness towards us. One of the reasons why we have communion is so that we, so because God uses the sacraments, and in this case communion, to assure us how much he loves us. This is a sign of God's love for us. Um, you can think of um, in, in the, uh, you can think of your wedding ring kind of like that. You look at your wedding ring and that's a symbol of your spouse's love for you. Well, Holy Communion is the same. The difference, of course, being that um, communion, uh, something is, is, is tangibly happening as well, whereas you can be married without your ring. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not necessary. Uh, matter of fact, the Puritans really did not like the, uh, the wedding ring, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> so we are assured of God's favor and goodness towards us. And then we go on to say that we are assured that we are very members in corporate in the mystical body of Christ, that is the blessed company of all faithful people. What does that mean? Well, um, very members, that means we're really members. Um, we, are, we are those specific members um, in corporate. We're, it's, it's all together, right? Um, brought into the mystical body of Christ. And then we explain, oh, by the way, what's the mystical body of Christ? That's the faithful company, the blessed company, rather, of all faithful people. So part of the communion we have in communion is communion with each other. And so one of the benefits is that communion with each other, that, that assurance of being a member of the church, of doing this together, and um, communing with each other. And then third, it says that we are assured that we are heirs through hope of God's everlasting kingdom by the merits of Christ's most precious death and passion. And that gets to really the, the, the crooks um, uh, of, of the sacrament. And yeah, that, that language is actually pretty, pretty precise there. The crooks indeed, the cross of, of the sacrament. Um, we, are, we are, because of his death and passion, heirs of his kingdom. That's, that's another part of, of that communion we have with each other, but that's also communion with God. We're heirs of his kingdom because we are, we are joint heirs with Christ. We are united to Christ. And communion is the sacrament of our union with Christ. And so then when we continue on, we talk about what we're supposed to get out of this. We don't just take the sacrament and go home. 
No, it's supposed to make a change. It's supposed to do something. And so we pray for God's grace that we would continue in that holy fellowship. And fellowship is the same word as communion. So we take communion so that we'll continue in communion. (laughs) We will continue in, in holy fellowship with whom? With each other and with Jesus. And because we're continuing in that holy fellowship, we would do all such good works that God has prepared for us to walk in. We should be doing good things. We should be fulfilling God's commandments um, because he's fed us with Christ's body and blood and communion. But what happens if you can't take communion? What happens for those who maybe they're um, homebound? What happens for those who are sick? What happens for those who um, are on the uh, Sunday morning shift and can't get out of it? What happens if um, there's a reason why you can't, you're not really, uh, you really shouldn't come and actually partake? Maybe you're in some sin that you need to repent of, that kind of thing. Well, there is this long-standing concept within the church of a spiritual communion. Now, the spiritual communion is not um, the same. It's not quite as, uh, I mean, you want to have real communion, right? That's the whole point. Um, But there are benefits from this idea of spiritual communion. Now, this first was on my radar when I would sometimes listen to Catholic radio on my way to work way back in the day, and they would have the mass that that day. And when they got to actually distribution, they would cut out and they'd have someone else come on doing a a prayer for those who could only take spiritual communion. I'm like, that's an interesting Catholic concept, you know, Roman Catholic concept. But it's actually in our prayer book too. (laughs) So at the bottom of the visitation of the sick, Pay on in page 323. So this is from our visitation of the sick rubric. And I researched this during the pandemic because there was a long time during the pandemic when we were not offering communion every week. And incidentally, we've mentioned this before, but there's a long time in the life of the church where communion was not done every week anyway, right? But there's this little rubric at the bottom of the communion or the uh, communion for the sick service on page 323 where it says... But if a man, either by reason of extremity of sickness or for want of warning in due time to the minister or by any other just impediment, do not receive the sacrament of Christ's body and blood, the minister shall instruct him that if he do truly repent him of his sins and steadfastly believe that Jesus Christ hath suffered death upon the cross for him and shed his blood for his redemption, earnestly remembering the benefits he hath thereby and giving him hearty thanks therefore, he doth eat and drink the body and blood of our Savior Christ profitably to his soul's health, although he do not receive the sacrament with his mouth. So what's that saying? That we, we also believe in, in, a, in a spiritual communion. Um, it's better to be here communing with everybody else. Um, it's better to be actually taking the sacrament. But um, if you can't, if there's a just impediment, it says, um, you know, that's okay. You're not, you're not missing the grace of the sacrament. Before we move on, questions, comments about that? Okay. Now, the reason why I wanted to bring that up in particular is because today we're going to be talking more about anti-communion. We mentioned that last week a little bit. 
but especially in the context of when we get into the church year, for a lot of us, taking communion on those saints days, those midweek saints days, is pretty impossible. Um, a lot of folks, they're either working, they're in school. Um, I don't think that uh, y'all getting off every, every, uh, every time we have a midweek Saints Day would work very much, uh, <laughs> Emily. Um, I, I don't know that they'll drive you down here every time. Maybe they, maybe they will. I don't know. But um, yeah, there, there's, there's going to be a lot of times we can't take communion, especially on those midweek Saints Days. And so what, what I'm... Well, last week we talked about some, and I'm going to reiterate today, is that one of the things you ought to do is um, go through that anti-communion service along with your morning prayer and, and um, think about and meditate on, as it says here, um, repent of your sins, steadfastly believe that Christ suffered death upon the cross and shed his blood, earnestly remembering the benefits, giving hearty thanks, and you can indeed partake of spiritual communion that way as well. So that's, that's where this discipline of anti-communion can be very helpful as we try to lean into the church year a little bit more. Um, is it better to be here? Yes, it's always better to be here. But when you can't, it's okay. That's, that's kind of the point. Um, and again, just a reminder from last week, um, when it comes to anti-communion, what is that? That's basically the service until the, uh, until the end of the reading of the gospel. You can add some other stuff to beef it up a little bit in your handout that has all that. And it, it pairs very well with morning prayer to make a really big morning prayer service on those special days. Okay? And again, we talked about that last week. If y'all want to talk about that more in detail, we can. But um, that's real important. So let's talk about the church year. Um, last week in my homily, I mentioned Jonathan Pajot from the, uh, the, the podcast, The Symbolic World, said something that I don't know why I heard him say this. I'm, I'm totally stealing this for class. And it was that the, for Christians, the church year is our epic. It is our epic story. And we have the chance, we have the opportunity to live that out in the life of the church. So there are some... There are going to be some um, resources that help us with that. So we'll talk about that in a bit. But let's just talk about the Christian year in general. The first half, we go through the life of Christ and the life of the church together as a, as a body, right? We begin with Advent, when, where we're expecting Jesus, and we go through um, his birth, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all of that stuff until the coming of the Holy Ghost at Pentecost. And that's about half of the year, Advent through Pentecost. In the second half, we focus on practical growth during Trinity Tide. If you turn your paper over, I did a pie chart. I actually learned how to use Excel to make a pie chart. And not only that, they didn't want to give me the colors I wanted, so I had to learn how to figure out how to do that. And I was like, okay, I actually did something useful in Excel. Um, actually, that's not true. I do stats for it in my other job all the time, but something that looks cool, not just that sits in my work file and uh, keeps me from getting sued. Um, <laughs> um, you'll see here we have beginning, beginning at clockwise at the top, and, or beginning at the top going clockwise, we have our major seasons, and this is going to be the maximum number of Sundays for each season of the year. So four Sundays in Advent, up to two Sundays in Christmas, sometimes it's only one, um, but it can be two. Um, up to six Sundays in Epiphany, 
It's not very often that we have six full Sundays in Epiphany, but we can have up to six Sundays in Epiphany. Then three Sundays of pre-Lent. What's pre-Lent? It's Septuagesima, um, Sexagesima, Quinquagesima. It's that season when we start to transition into Lent. We begin to do some of the Lenty things before we're quite fully in Lent. Um, Then six Sundays in Lent. The sixth Sunday is... What's the sixth Sunday in Lent? Not the resurrection. We're not there yet. Palm Sunday. Yes, the sixth Sunday is Palm Sunday. Um, And then six Sundays in Easter. And the sixth Sunday is um, Rogation Sunday. Um, You all aren't going to get that one. That's why I wasn't going to put that out for for a test. And then one Sunday after the Ascension. One Sunday of Pentecost. And then the octave of Pentecost is Trinity Sunday. And we have up to 28 Sundays, inclusive with Trinity Tide. Um, we don't have 28 uh, readings for Trinity Tide. What do you all think we do if we need more Sundays in Trinity and we don't have enough readings? Well, let's just put it this way. Trinity Tide and Epiphany Tide are the two seasons that are going to vary the most. So if you have a really long Trinity Tide, you probably have a really short Epiphany. And so what do you think you might do to make up those extra Sundays? Yeah, you borrow them from Epiphany. That's right. <laughs> you, just, you just borrow them. We, we do a daylight saving time on, uh, on, our, two, on our two seasons. <laughs> we, this is the, uh, the holy daylight savings time. Um, and I gave them to hear these, uh, these Sundays in their, in their colors as we do them today. Um, the color scheme, it's helpful for, for learning. It's helpful for remembering things. Um, the kids love it. Um, but it's not really essential to the way things are. I mean, the, this is a relatively, the current color scheme is relatively recent, and it doesn't get standardized till well after the Reformation, and that standard shifts. So you might be in some places that spend Palm Sunday um, through Easter in red rather than violet. It doesn't matter. It's okay. Um, but this is the current scheme that we use here. Um, in general, your purple seasons, your violet seasons are going to be penitential. And, and they're going to be penitential and expectational. Your white seasons are going to be celebratory. Your red seasons either have to do with the Holy Spirit or martyrdom, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. And then your green seasons are times of growth, what um, the modern Roman Catholics call ordinary time. I don't really like that term, but, but it's, it's, it's not inaccurate. It's just kind of boring. Um, so yeah, so Trinity Tide and Epiphany Tide are those seasons of more focused growth. Um, that's, the, that's the Sundays of the year. You will, if you add up all those numbers, we get like 57 um, Sundays. The most Sundays you can actually have is 53, and that only happens once every seven years. But um, that's because some of these seasons are they vary. Thoughts, questions, comments on the on the church year in that big picture. Y'all kids have this in the atrium, don't you? A, a chart like that, yeah. So this is like old hat for our atrium people. Okay, let's talk about the saints' days then. Now, by the time we get to the Reformation in the Middle Ages, we have a lot of saints' days. And the calendar's kind of flooded with saints' days by the end of the Middle Ages. And how, how does that happen? Well, 
what happens is, if we go back way, way, way to the beginning of the church, um, if you are in San Antonio, not like there were any Christians in San Antonio in those days, but if they were, let's, let's say they were, and um, one of our local priests was uh, martyred for the faith, we're going to start celebrating remembering his death, right? And then as more people hear about this guy, that's going to spread to other parts of the church. And by, and by the end of it, the church authorities are like, okay, we need to standardize this a little bit because we've got these crazy calendar differences all over the place, and let's try to get it one-to-one. One one. By the end of the Middle Ages, almost every day had its own saint's day. Um, and I can't help but think of Dash on The Incredibles. If uh, you know, He says, if everybody's special, nobody's special. And that's kind of what I feel, feel about the calendar. Okay, if, if every day is a holy day, no day is really a holy day. <laughs> You know, that, not, not really. Um, and so then you start making different classes of holy days. This is a first-class double, and, uh, I mean, and who, who can keep all that straight, right? I mean, some people really enjoy it, and God bless them, but um, I, like, I like the simplicity, and so do our reformers. Um, so that's going into the Reformation. That's kind of the state it is. Modern Roman Catholicism is the same way. You listen to Catholic radio, EWTN. Today is so-and-so Saints Day. And sometimes it gets so crowded, you have to start shifting people around. So like nowadays, the way we do St. Thomas is not the way they do St. Thomas because they needed to shuffle him around somewhere. You get moved, um, things like that. At the English Reformation, it gets, it gets very, very simplified. And the way that our English reformers do things is they say, we're going to have red-letter days, why are they called red-letter days? Because in the book, they're printed in red. Um, that's why they're red-letter days, because the letters are literally red. Um, and red-letter days are going to be the days with their own special readings, their own special collect epistle and gospel. Those are your red-letter days. And by and large, those are all going to be characters, figures from the New Testament or events in the life of Jesus. So that's your red-letter days. Then we're going to have black-letter days, which are other saints' days that are important to us as Englishmen. And basically, we're just going to acknowledge that they're there without doing necessarily anything special liturgically. Now, you might do some special things in your own homes and or in villages. You might have different civil customs related to this, but you're not going to have anything special liturgically. Um, a good example of this is um, the... Uh, the uh, Feast of the Blessed Virgin Mary um, in, in August 15. Um, because of the medieval stories that arose, doubtful stories about the Assumption, they weren't quite sure if that was true or not. Um, they didn't think that needs to be a red-letter day because it's an event that's not in Scripture. It's just a tradition, and maybe it's a real tradition, maybe it's not. We don't know. But that was a very important day for their civil calendar. So it's, it remains as, as, part of the, as part of the observations. Or you might have certain particular English saints, Albin, Edward the Confessor, things like that. When we get to the American church, we don't have those special um, cultural saints days. <laughs> we're, we're, we're an immigrant people. We're made from all sorts of folks. And so the American church only keeps the red-letter days um, until very recently. The 1928 considered adding black letter days, but instead, uh, it didn't really, it was too controversial, it didn't pass. So instead they said, okay, here's a generic Saints Day set of readings, so if you want to add something, here's what you can use. <laughs> so um, that works. Um, the ACNA these days has a pretty complex calendar with those black letter days where they're going to say, okay, here are 
some black letter days that are particular to the Anglicans. Here are some that are particular to the wider church. And it's pretty neat, but again, it's really hard to, in my opinion, to keep track of it all. Um, and it's a little artificial in my opinion. So we have just the red letter days. Not only do we, especially in our 1928 Book of Common Prayer, have the Epistle, Gospel, and Collect for these red letter days, which means we have communion on these days, but we also have special readings for morning and evening prayer. And the way that our prayer book sets it up is actually we, for most of these days, we observe the vigil, the eve of the day as well. Remember in the Bible, in Genesis, there was evening, there was morning the first day. That's how um, the, 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 the Old Testament counted days, the Hebrew mindset, it begins at evening of the day. Um, so we would, we would add that evening service as well. For um, much of our history, those were considered fast days. Our prayer book doesn't necessarily do that. But we're going to have readings for all these, all these days. So we're going to have the night before, the, the morning of, communion, and the night of each, each, each of the major holy days. That sounds like a lot, but what it really helps you to do is, is get the point of why we're celebrating these guys. So it's, it's a tall order at times, but it's really beneficial if you can do this um, in, your, in your own thing. Now, the, the 1662 daily lectionary that we're going to be using, it doesn't have such a robust saints set of readings. Um, in other words, there's going to be some overlap. So do what's going to work for you. What I will most likely be doing here at All Saints when I'm sitting out the videos or whatever for those days is I will, on those days, use that, the holiday readings, the, the, the Saints Day readings. But I'll probably double up um, so we don't lose the, the daily readings. So like the, the day before, I'll double up or something like that. Or maybe the day after, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll take it as that. Um, on the back, you'll have our fixed holy days. What's, what's, what does it mean when there are fixed holy day? Does that imply there are some broken holy days? Oh, come on, guys. That was funny. <laughs> yeah, they, they, don't, they don't move. Yeah, they're fixed to the, count, the, to the calendar. Um, yeah, and what's that opposed to? Fixed versus? Changing. Yeah, changing, movable. Yeah. Um, the ones that are movable are all related to Easter in some way because Easter moves around since it's always on a Sunday. And so all the movable holy days are tied to Easter, um, which is why I didn't really put any of them there. Um, but these are our fixed holy days. They're always on the same day each time in the calendar. The exception is if one of these ones in the springs conflicts with Holy Week or Easter week, we do bump it to, um, to, to later on so that it doesn't conflict. We, we, we move it to follow um, Easter rather than, um, than have it during Holy Week. Um, now, some of these names are in red, some of them are in black. Pretend that the black is white. I couldn't figure out how to uh, make it outlined. Um, what do you think the difference might be between the, using the color red for some of these days and the color white for some of these days? Okay, some are people, some are, ev are events, okay. The red ones are martyrs, that's right. And so we celebrate, and, or we celebrate, we are celebrating their martyrdom on, on their feast day. That's a bit more precise because when we go forward to on um, 
January 25th, the conversion of St. Paul. St. Paul is definitely a martyr, but we're commemorating his conversion. Same with Nativity of St. John the Baptist. We commemorate his birth, not his, his death. Um, for John the Baptist, the reason for that is because his birth is tied to um, the date of Christmas. So the Annunciation, Christmas, Nativity, John the Baptist, all those things are tied together. Um, for the conversion of St. Paul, uh, it's basically the, the, the church has, has historically celebrated the martyrdom of Paul and Peter together. Um, at the, the English reformers were like, nobody gets, nobody gets two, two feast days except for Jesus and Mary. And so uh, Paul's Paul's death stops being commemorated, um, plus it takes away from Peter if they're done on the same day, and we, so we instead only commemorate his, um, his, his conversion. But yeah, these are, these are our, um, our fixed holy days in, in, our, in our calendar, um, and some of them, you know, be like Christmas and those sorts of things, are um, related to the life of Jesus. Uh, Transfiguration is new for the 28. For some reason, it falls off the the radar at the time of the Reformation, but it gets reintroduced in the 28. And um, this year, it's actually on a Sunday, Father Eric will be preaching on the Transfiguration. Um, and you'll notice that all of these people are apostles, disciples in the New Testament. And when it comes to our two Marian feast days, the purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary on, um, on Candlemas, uh, February 2nd, and then the Annunciation of the Blessed Virgin Mary on the 25th of March. Um, those are also um, events in the life of Jesus. So, that, so that's another reason why we get both of them. In fact, some people refer to the purification instead as the presentation of Christ in the temple instead, you know, that sort of thing. All right, so those are our fixed holy days. It's a much simpler calendar. The cool thing about it being a simpler calendar is it actually does give us this break from the ordinary when we're doing it. It's a lot easier to observe. Um, you know, looking at this again, December is when we have the most days, but they're all right around Christmas. Um, when else do we have a whole lot of days? That's, that's really the only one where we have more than two, I think is in December. Oh, June. There's a bunch in June, too. Um, January has three, does it? Yeah, January has three. That's true, too. So, but, yeah, so we, we have a few that, but they're, they're generally uh, spread out. And when it comes to the January ones, those are still tied to the, to the Christmas season anyway. So, I mean, all of, we're still celebrating Christmas through all of those December and January ones. Um, so, so really, the only really heavy lifting is in June, and even then it's pretty spread out. Um, and that's not to say that they're onerous, it's just that we do, we do spread it out. We have, we, 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 it's something that's actually pretty manageable. How do we observe these holy days? Well, you will find some different kind of folk traditions here and there. Um, if you want to start incorporating that into your family stuff, that's fine. Uh, a website, I did not put this on your, on your notes, but you might want to write this in. Um, the Homely Hours. The Homely Hours. 
I don't think there's any new content being done there for a while. Um, the, the, the gal who was putting it together, I think has pretty much done all she wanted to do, but it's still there as a resource for different family and really ch child-centered things to do at those days. Um, that's, that's, so that, that's, that's a possibility, but, but as a dad, I'm not sure I'm gonna be introducing a whole lot of new traditions. You know, we, we've got our family traditions. Maybe we'll do something every now and again, but it's like, you know, at, at, at what point does it become artificial? You know, it's not really a family tradition. <laughs> and that doesn't mean it's bad, but it means like, you know, don't, you don't have to go out of your way to say, oh, you know, this is uh, St. Saint, Saint Michael's Day. We need to do something related to Michael and Dragons that day. If you want to, that's fine, but you don't have to. You know, it's not a big deal. Um, it, it, it can, historically, some of these feast days have helped set the calendar a little bit. Like, um, Feast of St. Michael has been often what they will call the start of school term because it's usually really close to, to uh, St. Michael's Day, so it'll be the, the Michaelmas term. You know, you'll hear that from some schools from time to time, things like that. But again, don't, don't worry about all that too terribly much. The most important thing we can do on these holy days is if you can, come to Mass if we can and when we actually have it. <laughs> um, if you can't, um, you know, add that anti-communion to your, to, your, to your readings and have these as special times of being in the Bible for special things. And ask yourself as you read these readings, why were these ones chosen for this, for this feast day? You know, think about that. Meditate on that. What is what? Are, what are we trying to be told about God and about the Lord Jesus and about us and about the church when we read these readings? That's the really important thing. And again, when you do the eve, the morning communion, and the and the and the evening, um, you you get a pretty robust set of readings. But a hint is the collect will usually give you a bit of a focus. We also have in our hymnal. I think it's number 186 or 168. It's either 80, 186 or 168 is, a, is an old 19th century hymn where each verse addresses a different one of these red letter days. And it's the same days that are in ours. Um, and they will usually kind of try to weave in together some of those major readings into the poetry there. So that's a cool, that's a cool thing to do. Um, and we'll almost always sing that on these red letter days. Okay. Um, questions, comments, thoughts on the, on the holy days. Okay. Do you, do you see though how kind of observing the church calendar helps us order our life in a Christian way? Like we really do start to have the rhythms of life following, um, the church and the Lord. Um, you know, like some of these hallmark holidays, like they, they mean nothing to me at this point. Um, and it's not that they're bad, but it's just, okay, you know, I know what's happening in our culture. It's spent a lot of money and, you know, I don't need my kids to give me all sorts of tons and tons of stuff on Father's Day. It's my money anyway, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? Right. And we want, you know, and Heather said the same thing on Mother's Day, right? You know, it's like, okay, you know, no, no use blowing our budget just so that we can do something, you know, sell. we'll do something, but we don't need to do like, we don't need to go all out the way that our culture wants us to do. Um, how much better is it to kind of focus on this very countercultural approach where our, our, our year, our life is surrounded by the events and people of Scripture?
Yeah, that's really helpful. And that, you know, that's not to make us, you know, weird outsiders to our neighbors, but there, there is something that helps preserve community that way. Um, it's, it's, you know, to, to use a bit of a buzzword from the last decade or so, it's very Benedict option. You know, this is that helping to establish that community outpost of faith in a, in a culture that is rapidly abandoning our faith and becoming hostile to it. Um, and sp speaking of such things, we do have some, some other holy days on our calendar. Not really holy days, but markers. And this is for our civil and seasonal, some civil and seasonal days. So first we have the ember days. What do the ember days do? They mark the changing of the seasons. And traditionally we, we pray for um, the ministry on the ember days. Um, how that got attached, I'm not 100% sure, but it's at the changing of the seasons and, it's, and the, the prayer focus tends to be for the ministry. Um, and so our four ember, and the ember days are the Wednesday, the Friday, and the Saturday that follow these, these four days. So the winter ember days always follow the third Sunday in Advent. Um, the uh, spring ones follow the first, I have Lent one, it should be Lent three. That's, that's incorrect on here. It's Lent three, not Lent one. The third Sunday in Lent, not the first Sunday in Lent. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I believe that's right because it's it's um it's the feast of St. Lucy and that's not true. Yeah, it is. No, that's an advent, it's the feast of St. Lucy. So yeah, Lent it is Lent one. I'm sorry, I was getting my days mixed up. The the Ember days because they're not widely practiced anymore, it's it's easy to get this mixed up. And um so yeah, Advent the third Sunday in Advent because St. Lucy's Day is traditionally when it would follow, and St. Lucy's Day always falls during the third Sunday of Advent or right, right around it. So you're always going to have, if you're going to do a Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, it will, following Lucy's Day, it will always be in the, um, the third Sunday. Then the, the, the week of the first Sunday in Lent, so the, the first Friday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday following the first Sunday in Lent, the Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday following Pentecost, Whit Sunday, and then following September 14th, which um, in the old calendars traditionally was Holy Cross Day. Um, yeah, we don't have Holy Cross Day on our calendar. Um, in the atrium, it gets, it gets referenced because of this, and it helps with the uh, kind of school timing and that sort of thing. Um, but do what? That's true. There is no frost in Texas. That's right. Um, a Holy Cross Day, not, not frost, cross day. Holy, Holy Frost Day. No, Holy, Holy Cross Day is the Autumn Ember Days. Our prayer book just calls them the Autumn Ember Days. But the old English, um, the old English rhyme was Lenti, Plenty, Crucy, Lucy. And that's if you're starting in spring rather than in, in the winter. But, um, you know, Lenti, Plenty because um, Pentecost is harvest time, right? Um, Crucy for the cross, and then Lucy is the, the winter, the winter one, St. Lucy's Day. So Lenti, Plenty, Crucy, Lucy, um, and again, the Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday, and those are supposed to be fast days as we seek the Lord for these changing of the seasons and the, um, and the increase of the ministry. Um, another seasonal one is Rogation Days. That's going to be the, the Monday through Wednesday between Rogation Sunday and the Ascension. That's another agricultural thing. 
it's related to the um, the days of the days of harvest, and so it's 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 traditionally been a time when you might um, look over the grounds of the parish. Um, in this context, parish being more like your neighborhood <laughs> than your than your actual church par- church itself in the old context. Um, but it's very agricultural, so there's so it's a good time to thank God for um, providing for us. And again, they're kind of quasi fasting days. And then in our, in our context, we have two civil holidays, Independence Day and Thanksgiving Day. Um, and in both cases, we, look, we, we approach Independence Day from the, from the perspective of we're thanking God for giving us our country. And, for, and, and there, there is this, this, this very Christian understanding that God is active in history. Um, even if you want to say that some of, that may, maybe you want to make the argument that the colonists shouldn't have rebelled, uh, maybe you don't want to make that argument, say that it was a good cause. It doesn't really matter. The fact is, God allowed that to happen, and he's given us a country. And so we thank him for it. And we pray that he would um, preserve us as righteous people so that we could be good stewards of what he's given us. And we could look after the the poor and the hungry and the fatherless, do the kinds of things we're supposed to do when God gives us a home. Um, Thanksgiving is a bit more obvious. (laughs) It's the day of Thanksgiving, so those are our two civil holidays. And what we end up getting also with the church year, including these seasonal days and these civil days, is these these community times of fasting and feasting. Um, It's a good thing to practice the discipline of fasting, but it's also a good thing to practice the discipline of feasting. Like they're two sides of the same coin. Um, Looking back at our pie chart, those purple seasons are fast seasons. Now that makes for leading up to Christmas, it can be really tough to fast Mm -hmm. because that's when our culture around us has all their Christmas parties, right? Um, Do your best. (laughs) That's the best way you can do it. Um, Pre-Lent and Lent, you know, usually, traditionally, you'd use pre-Lent as a time to kind of build up that fasting discipline because Lent is a lot more rigorous. But then we've got those little fasts throughout the year. Fridays um, are traditionally a fast day. Um, The Ember Days, the Rogation Days, these, these other smaller fast seasons. But fasting is always followed by feasting, right? Um, Christmas, Easter, um, things like that. And, and then we ought to just be moderate in all those green seasons, right? <laughs> not, not, be, uh, not, not be gluttonous, not be, uh, not be um, super fasty. Thoughts, questions, comments? Well, this is a shorter one, unless you all have a lot to discuss with this. Jeff? Yeah, so the question is, um, for, the, for the recording, is when, when you're traveling and you might be um, out of town with a family member and you go to an, another church that uh, maybe does not have the same perspective on communion that we do, what's best practices? Um, that's that's going to really be an issue of prudence and prayer. Um, 
what other people think of communion doesn't affect communion. Now you might say, but wait a minute, if it's not a minister in apostolic succession of holy orders, is that really communion? Um, historically, our reformers didn't have a problem with that. Um, but for them, it was largely you're outside of England and they, you know, you're, you're in Scotland and they're all Presbyterians over there or something like that. It's not you're visiting a neighboring town where they're not doing what the established church does, right? That's kind of the, our reformers' perspective. Um, there are some people whose who's particular piety is going to be such that this is not... This doesn't have the solemnity that, that I'm used to or that I think communion ought to, so I'm going to abstain. That's fine. There's other people that say, hey, I'm here with my brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we're not on the same page on everything, let's not abstain. Um, this was a lot easier back when um, everybody kind of had a much more closed communion. <laughs> you know, when, you were, when Anglicans required confirmation before communion, when um, Lutherans and Presbyterians did the same, when Baptists required church membership for communion. It was a lot easier because if you were an outsider, you just couldn't do it. That's not the way it is today. Um, so, so I, I would, I would say you use your prudence on that. Here's the funny thing though. Um, with the exception of going to my sister's Lutheran service, when I was godparents for one of my nephews, when I was a godfather for one of my nephews, I've actually never been in that situation in, the, in, in, in 10 years. I have not been visiting a place where it, where it happened to be communion Sunday because a lot of, a lot of these places, they just don't do it very often. So, um, I haven't, I haven't had to really think about it in terms of, in those terms. And, and in fact, with, you know, with the, the situation with my sister's Lutheran church, while they might not have the same perspective on holy orders, they're actually a bit more hardcore than Anglicans historically have been on communion. Um, so th their, their perspective on communion is actually a little bit more rigorous than, than mine. And frankly, if their pastor was doing what he's supposed to do as an LCMS pastor, he wouldn't have let me take communion. Because um, the LCMS still officially retained closed communion, but this pastor did not. Um, I mean, he, he, knew, he knew who I was. <laughs> so um, anyway, that, that doesn't really answer your question, Jeff. But that's, that's, an area, that's an area where I would just say, pray about it. Um, if you have peace with taking communion elsewhere, that's fine. If you don't, don't. Um, it's not going to be... It's not going to be bad for you to take it, and it's not going to be bad for you to abstain. That, that's why this is an issue of prudence and really what do you have peace with? Um, yeah, that's, yeah, sorry for a non-answer answer, but... The spiritual communion thing. Right. You're the one who decides pros and cons because you're like, oh, well, I feel I should not be taking it or it's not like you're going around saying, hey, what do you, you know, I'm checking up on you, you're deciding whether. Yeah, that's, that, that's exactly right. You know, he, um, for, for the recording, 
Reese was saying, um, it's like it's like the spiritual communion. You are the one that needs to make that that prudential case. There are some churches where the where they do have more close communion, where the pastor will um, ask you. Um, I, I'm friends with an Orthodox priest. Um, a lot of Orthodox churches kind of like don't ask, don't tell on this. A lot of Roman Catholic churches are don't ask, don't tell on this kind of issue. Um, but he takes his duty very seriously as an Orthodox priest. And so if he hasn't talked to you before and he doesn't know you, he will ask you at the communion rail. And if you're not Orthodox, he won't give you communion. If you say you're Orthodox and you're lying, even if he knows you're lying, he's going to, well, that's on you at this point, right? Um, you know, but, but I mean, golly, okay, you're going to go and lie just before taking communion. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's not a good thing. Right. <laughs> you know, and the other, the other thing, you know, um, historically we have not seen um, pasteurized grape juice as valid matter for, for, for wine. Unpasteurized because it has the potential, potential for fermentation we would see as historically as valid matter, but not unpasteurized. Um, I, I probably wouldn't take communion if it's just Welch's. Um, not, not because I have anything wrong with what they're, with, with not, like, not saying anything wrong about their community, but my understanding of what we're supposed to do in communion, um, Welch's doesn't cut it any more than doing Kool-Aid would cut it, right? You know, I mean, no, I mean, it's, it's, but, but this, this is the thing. You know, we, 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 had, we had an issue at, at Reese's and, and, um, and, and, and Riley's wedding where it was at a Methodist place and they don't do, they're not, alcohol is prohibited. So what do we do? Well, we got de-alcoholized wine because Welch's don't cut it from our understanding of communion. Now, we could have also gotten unpasteurized grape juice. I don't even know how you do that these days. But, um, but yeah, so, so that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of... But, you know, again, if, if people... If, if I'm not going to tell, you know, the Methodists who are using Welch's, I'm not going to go up to them and be Eucharist police, right? That's between, that's between them and God. But my understanding is that that's not, that's not valid, valid matter for the Eucharist. So, so I would not partake in that situation. Uh, that might answer your question a little bit better, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or they, they might offer both. Um, but, yeah. Cool. Any, any, anybody else? Any, anything else? Yeah. Okay. Lay, lay Eucharistic ministers. Um, we haven't... We haven't used them in a long time. That is something we could do. We just haven't ever needed to train any in, in here at All Saints. Um, they're they're not uncommon in the in the diocese. So, what's a lay Eucharistic minister? Um, that's that's a lay person that is trained on how to properly handle it. I mean, all of our all of our um, lay readers function as Eucharistic ministers when it's just me and them, rather than me and Father John and them, or me and another priest and them. So, they, but that, that's within the context of here, not taking it out. But yeah, we 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 could do that. We just haven't. Um, and basically, you'd be trained in 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 dealing with the elements with the, with the consecrated bread um, reverently. Uh, we usually would not send um, pre-consecrated wine. That, that that gets into some really complicated things. Um, but we we could do it. We just, we just haven't had a need to here locally. Um, and what, what that would basically in, entail is tr training you with some litur some liturgical aspect, proper handling, and, and things like that. Um, and there's nothing that prevents, um, that I know of, uh, women from being lay Eucharistic ministers. 
Um, my grandmother was Roman Catholic and she was an LEM. I think I got her picks when she died, for example. So um, the picks is what you carry the, the consecrated host in. Um, but yeah, we, we could do that, we just don't. And usually we do bring the reserved, when, we, when we're bringing to the sick, we do usually bring the reserved sacrament, so it's already been consecrated. Um, our prayer book really has it more designed to consecrating there. But if you've ever visited a hospital, that's impossible. Like you're getting nurses and doctors coming in and out all the time. Um, you go to someone's house, maybe there's a proper place to do it, maybe there's not. I mean, you just don't know. And, and we have all the way back to Justin Martyr, the example, you know, so second century, um, they would take from the, from the table basically some, some leftovers to um, bring to the sick and the shut-ins. So it's, it's a thing. All right. Well, then I think with that, we will go ahead and close. Next week, we'll look at private devotions, and that's it. That's the end of the series. <laughs>